Don't just talk about it, be about it. And being about it, friends, is harder than it might seem. And I'm going to talk about being about it in just a moment. This is Nero Feliciano, and welcome to the All Things Life podcast. I'm a wife, a mom of four, and a cognitive psychotherapist. And I'm really excited to share these conversations and interviews with you that will hopefully help you live a healthier, fuller, and more peaceful life. So welcome to the podcast. And you know, you can tell even just from my voice that it's been a heavy week, heavy for many people. And I didn't feel it was appropriate to just continue on with my usual plans on this podcast without talking a little bit more about what people are feeling and what's happened over the last couple weeks now. There are a couple things that I want to talk to you about today that I want to share with you, just thoughts that I've been having every day as I've been going through this week, as I've had people contact me asking me, what can I do? Asking me to explain different things to them and friends just calling to tell me how they're feeling, you know, as I've been reaching out and asking people how they're feeling. It's been a heavy week for a lot of people. My good black friends are tired. They're exhausted. And it is a tiredness that they've experienced before. But think about how we were feeling when we were put into this pandemic, when we know that we're facing this unknown and we don't know what we can do to make it better. Now, we know that at some point there's going to be a vaccine, there's going to be a treatment, and staying inside is going to help us. And as we've seen in the case of Breonna Taylor, staying inside does not help certain situations. Can you imagine going through all of that, trying to reassure your kids and their fa- your family of their safety, and then being black and having to deal with the unknown and the uncertainty and the volatility of the situation that now has presented itself? It is too much on top of a pandemic. You're dealing with children and families that have experienced the fear of coronavirus, and now we're putting on top of them more to process and think about and explain to their children. I've had certain friends say on Facebook and who've, who I've had conversations with who've told me that they're exhausted, that they had to cancel their work the other day and just stay in bed with their kids and hold them. And they were all crying together and they were having conversations trying to understand how can I be more white in this world so that I'm safer? Or why can't I be the person that God created me to be and have that be okay? These are not conversations that any parent should have with their children, but it's a reality for these families. And they're tired and they've gone through this before. And having seen this so widespread on media, experiencing it, it's also opening up other wounds that they've suffered in the past. So I I wanted to say this and share this with you because I want you to know that it's not the job of people of color to inform and educate other non-people of color, other non-black people of what this experience is like. And I'm, I'm speaking that as a non-black person of color. I say that because I'm able to continue these conversations. I recognize and step in that gap, stand in that gap 
and continue to educate and inform because my history has not been the same as a black person in this country. Meaning that this system that has been set up to empower people who do not have dark skin, I've actually benefited from that system as someone who is not black, even though I'm brown. And part of that is that as a South Asian, we have more Caucasian features. It sounds so stupid, but it is so powerful when we're talking about racism. Part of that is that my people have not been subject to the same kind of dehumanization and history of dehumanization that I talk about in the last podcast as black people in this country. In fact, the stereotypes of my people have worked in my favor that we are doctors and engineers and IT people and that we're really good at math and science. And by the way, I suck at math. And I'm not just saying that because it's true. It's true. But I've benefited from the idea that I might not, that I actually might be good at that because I look the way that I do. Now, that's not to say that I haven't suffered discrimination because I'm dark skinned. I have, I have. And so have people in my family, as I talked about also in the last podcast. And when it comes down to someone just looking at me when I'm walking in a room, there are in, implicit biases, as I've talked about also before, that come into play. But it's not the same, and it's not the same history. And for that reason, I'm going to use my privilege. I'm going to use the fact that I haven't been in that place, and I'm not facing the same intensity of emotion right now. I'm not having the same conversations with my kids. I'm having conversations. I'm talking with my brown son about how he might be perceived in, in this world, but I'm also recognizing that there are people who are going to look at him as not black as well. And that's going to work to his advantage in a very sick way. So I, I just wanted to make that distinction as I move on in this discussion, because I think all of us need to look at our privilege and how we can use it. Even if, even when we are brown, even when we are brown, it is not the same. Some of the things I'm about to share with you, I shared on an Instagram live on my social media with author Amy Julia Becker, who wrote White Picket Fences, which is about white privilege. It's an excellent book. I recommend everyone to read it. In addition to the book, White Fragility, there are actually a lot of resources out there right now that you can pick up to learn more. There are YouTube videos that people are posting. I've seen a lot of people, white people, ready to fight for something. And what I wanted to say is before you fight against something effectively, you have to understand what you're fighting against. And that is not just these horrific egregious acts of racism, but what racism is systemically in this country, what the systems have been that have been set up to ensure the success of one people and not another. We also have to understand how we have contributed to the problem. And part of doing this is listening to those black voices who are talking about it right now. I think understanding how we have contributed to the problem is huge. And it, it happens in so many different ways, as I talked about when I was talking about implicit bias. But there are ways that we, we might not even realize. We might be actually fighting for the same thing, but still contributing to that problem. I want to talk about one way I've seen this over the past couple weeks. The saying, Black Lives Matter. 
many people have promoted that saying and they understand it and they are fighting for it with those terms. But there have been many people and and really good intentioned people, even some of my Christian friends, people who I know are saying it out of love, have responded to it at, in terms of all lives matter. And, and I just wanted to take a minute to explain what that does when a black person or a brown person hears that. And why I think this is important is because I see this happening a lot in the church as well. I know at one point people were saying blue lives matter just to support law enforcement. When, when someone says all lives matter, as a response to people saying Black Lives Matter, it triggers some pain and it triggers hurt in those people of color. And why it does this is because it feels like no matter what Black people are saying, no matter how much dehumanization we've caught on video and we're seeing, people are not taking the time to hear and understand it. And to understand that the reason why we have to say Black Lives Matter is because there's so many situations in this country, in this world, in our history, where the message has been communicated that black lives don't matter. So essentially, when we're saying black lives matter, we're saying black lives matter too. And the way that we're treating black people, we're acting as if they don't. I, I understand when this is coming from families of people in law enforcement and it's and military. It's coming from a place of fear, you know, that their loved one is in danger. And part of the reason why they're in danger is because of what's going on right now. And people who are saying all lives matter, all lives are equal. Well, when one people group have been left out so that they feel like they don't matter, right? When they feel like they don't matter, we have to specifically talk to them about it. We have to specifically speak that over their life and include them. I was trying to explain this to my daughter, Sophia, and we were talking about it in terms of a game and being at recess. And this is what I told her. And this was also her response. I said to her, imagine that you are at recess watching your class play a game each kid was invited to play by two kids who started this whole game. Those two kids actually invented this game so that you would not have a part in it. But everyone else did, and they were all playing really nicely together. Maybe some of the people you saw playing didn't know you weren't invited to play. They were actually your friends, but they played it anyway. So your teacher is watching, and she sees this happening and says, come with me. She takes you by the hand, walks you over to the other kids and says, hey guys, Sophia matters. Does that mean that everyone else doesn't matter? Or does it mean that you are more important than the other kids? Sophia then says to me, no, they already mattered because they were included in the game. She's saying that they need to include me because I matter too. My nine-year-old could understand that when I explained it on her terms, but we as adults are still having trouble getting that. When, when I think about people saying all lives matter and, and blue lives matter, I, I think about the whole institution of, of the police force. And like I said in the last podcast, and I'm sorry I keep referring to it. I mean, if you haven't listened to it, please do, because there's a lot of information that I think will be helpful, I'm hearing, to understand this. 
when I think about the police as an organization, it has been designed so that they do protect their own. We've seen that before. That's not to say that police aren't standing up for this behavior, and they are, and that's been really encouraging. And it's in no way to say that there are no good police officers, because I think we all know that there are. We're seeing that even now more so on social media. But when I think about black people, what system has been designed to protect them? Where can they go for protection? What what systems are in place to ensure their advancement and their protection? I don't know if we have any. And this is why we continue to say Black Lives Matter. So even if you don't understand it, I'm telling you, as someone who loves you and who sees your heart and sees that you're saying it, when you say it, it is hurtful. It is hurtful. And it is part of the issue that we're dealing with now when we talk about covert racism. And even even racism unknowingly is still racism. So it's so important that we listen and understand and process and try and have these conversations with people who come from a different experience or who understand it differently. I live in the idyllic town of Ridgefield, Connecticut. It is predominantly white. And this past week, I've seen a lot of very promising, hopeful things and anti-racist protest, a peaceful protest. They're organizing a virtual rally, which I've been asked to speak on and share a little bit more about my experiences and my background when it comes to this work. And and it's been really encouraging. There are also people who believe that racism doesn't exist in this town. And what I wanted to tell you, based on that history of dehumanization, based on the media, based on the messages that we take in and perceive, racism can start very, very young. And that's why it's important to start this conversation at home and to do it in different ways. Again, don't just talk about it, be about it. So so what does that mean? Let me just give you an example of how young this can actually start. A few years ago, and I talked about this on my Instagram Live, a few years ago, my family was at our community pool. We have community pools in Ridgefield that you can join. And my son was probably, Samuel is 11 now. He was probably about seven at the time. And he was playing with these three little boys, these white boys. All three of them were blonde, just to give you a visual. And here you have my very suntanned in July dark sun. And they had water guns and they were shooting water guns at each other. And all of a sudden they stop. And one of the boys said, you can't play this. He said that to my son because this is for white kids only. Now, where where did they get that? Where where did that come from? Did it come from their families? Did it come from their house? I don't know. Did it come from something they saw? Did they did it come from something they heard at school? I don't know. But it came from somewhere because it exists. And when we don't talk to our kids about this at a young age, we leave them to draw their own conclusions about race and difference and culture. I'll give you an example of this that happened today. Actually, just about an hour ago before I I started recording this podcast, I was talking to my six-year-old Carolina. I talk about Carolina a lot. She's pretty interesting. And she has has been saying recently, I want to do this for poor people. I want to do this for poor people. And and I said to her, you know, what's made you want to do these things that you want to do for poor people? I mean, she's like, collecting food from our fridge and finding toys that she wants to give away, that she wants to donate to poor people. 
And she said, well, we watched the movie Little Women and there were poor people in it and and the girls were doing some nice things for them. So I, I want to do that too, which is wonderful. I completely advocate for that. So I said to her, honey, what do poor people look like? And she said to me, poor people, you know, they have um, clothes that are dirty. They're dirty looking. And my husband is standing in the kitchen. My husband, Ed, who's Puerto Rican, who grew up very poor, he goes to me, he looks at me, he goes, oh, just like that. He he gasped. And and I said, I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because Ed does not gasp. There's very little that shocks him. I said, "What? why do you think they're dirty and poor? She goes, because they were dirty and poor in the movie. They were dirty. And I said, well, poor people can look just like us. And she goes, yes, but they're dirty. She was fixated on that. And I said, honey, poor people are not dirty. They don't look dirty. And she's like, well, that's because we give them nice things. Do you see how she had drawn her own conclusions based on that movie and what she saw? And if we didn't have the conversation about it, she would be growing up in her little mind, in her life, with a very different perspective of what poverty can look like. So it's it's so important that we have these conversations with our kids. I know we've started... We've start, we started a while ago, actually, by reading different books about kids who look different, whose experiences were talked about differently. And I have a list of these books on my Instagram in a video about reading to your child that focus on diverse characters. And they bring up the questions of experiences of injustice that you can talk about with your kids on their level. And we, we started this week and in different ways, age-appropriate ways, because my kids range from six years old to 13. And the 13-year-old pretty much knows as much as we do in terms of exposure. But the six-year-old, you know, we started with the six-year-old and the nine-year-old talking about how, you know, there, there are people who treat other people really badly in this world. And sometimes we all do it and we don't even realize it. And we treat them badly just because they're different. And my nine-year-old said, because they look different. And I said, yes, that's one of the ways they do it. So, so there are ways to approach these conversations. And I'm going to list some resources on the show notes, one in particular from a site called Pretty Good Design that's really good. But I just wanted to read you something quickly to give you just a perspective on how early kids notice difference and race. And what this site talks about at first, from zero to one-year-old, at birth, babies look equally at faces of all races, but by three months, babies look more at faces that match the race of their caregivers. At two years, children use race to reason about people's behaviors. Two years old. At two and a half, that's 30 months, most children use race to choose their playmates. I'm convinced that my my light-skinned daughter has an affinity for brown friends because of how she grew up with me as her mom. And when she was little, very little, and she would draw herself, I think I may have talked about this before. She would draw, and this is under two years old, she and myself, the same color, even though she's more like the color of her father. And Ed would always be the color of the paper, white. I mean, not even really a color. Poor man didn't even get a color. He was the color of the paper. So it, it shows how early their perception is in terms of race and identity. At four to five years old, expressions of racial prejudice often peak. Oftentimes I've seen kids in in stores look at other kids, comment that they might be chocolate, comment that they might be dirty, maybe they use a different soap. They're, they're very perceptive at this age. 
And at five years old, Black and Latinx children in research settings show no preference towards their own groups as compared to white children at this age who are more likely to be strongly biased in favor of whiteness. At five years, this is kindergarten age, children show many of the same racial attitudes held by adults in our culture. They have already learned to associate some groups with higher status than others. By five years, kindergarten in this country, kids know a lot. If they're a younger sibling, they know even more. When I look at my six-year-old, I see a 30-year-old trapped in a six-year-old's body because of some of the things that have come out of her mouth. I almost consider them as little adults by five and six, especially if they are a younger sibling. By five to seven years old, now this is pretty amazing. Explicit conversations with a five to seven-year-old about interracial friendships can dramatically improve their racial attitudes in as little as a week, in one week. So these conversations are really important. It's important to figure out what they're ready for and to start having the conversations in a way that's age appropriate. And part of the reason why we want to do this is we never want to make the subject of race taboo. We don't want it to be silenced. We don't want them to feel shame or uncomfortable with talking about it. And that starts with our own level of comfort, our own shame in talking about it. When we say black person, do we say black or don't say that? You know, because we're not comfortable with that word. We need to encourage these conversations and know that when we're getting into it, we're going to make mistakes. They're going to make mistakes. When we don't know something, we can ask somebody. Even as a brown person who's developed my whole racial identity in this country, I've had black people talk to me and say, hey, you know, when you say that, we don't take it that way. Or you may be encouraging people to think like this. And I'm open to that because my experience is not reflective of everyone's and especially not of black people. We have some commonalities. There are things on our Venn diagrams that overlap, but we do not share the same experience in history. So I need to continually hear and learn from my friends and, and educators as well in this matter. Just because I'm brown does not mean I understand it. And that's true depending on where you grew up and who your caregivers are. The one big thing that I want to talk about when it comes to being about it, showing our kids. I want to ask you, who are your friends of color and who are your black friends? Now, many of you who are listening to this live in environments, I'm sure, where they are predominantly white. They're predominantly white. Who do you know that you would feel comfortable going out to dinner with as a family, having people over? Who are the play dates that you're encouraging with your children? Now, this is not to say we all need token friends. We don't. That's not the kind of friendship that I'm trying to encourage. But are we reaching out to people who don't look like us so that we can foster meaningful relationships, so that we can communicate to our kids that we value those families, that we value those relationships, that we have things that we need to learn in order to move this issue forward, in order to make our world safer for everyone to live in, including your own children, regardless of what color they're in as we're seeing right now, regardless of what color they are, not what color they're in. So I'm, I'm asking you to think about that. Who are your friends? And if you don't have meaningful relationships, close relationships with people who look different from you, I encourage you to start thinking about how to do that and encouraging those relationships in your the, the lives of your kids. 
I can tell you, especially if you're coming from a church background, this is so important. We are as divided in many ways in the church as we are out of the church. And that's that's a sad, heartbreaking heaviness that I feel often, especially for my black friends in the church. So that's really all I wanted to say today. They were thoughts that I was talking about. It starts at home. It starts in the conversations. It starts with who we spend our time with, who we make a priority that we reach out to and have conversations with. There's there's a learning curve here. And many of us are in this together. But right now we're at a point where it's it's a life or death matter. Doing these things, exposing your kids, talking to your kids, it's a life and death matter for someone, even if it's not you. So thank you for listening to this. And please give me feedback, questions you might have. You can connect with me on social media, or you can email me at Nero at NeroFeliciano.com. I'm happy to have those conversations and I explain to you why I will continue to have them. I'll continue to do this work, not just on behalf of my family, but on behalf of all my friends and family members who are black, who now are exhausted and they have a right to be. So I'll continue to talk about it for us, for you, but especially for them. I hope you have a great week. I hope you have a thoughtful week. I hope you can think of some things that you can do this week to move this forward in the ways that you can. One more thing, I would encourage you to listen this week. Today's Blackout Tuesday where we're trying to amplify this week, especially the voices of people of color. There are some great podcasts out there that I want to recommend to you. Code Switch is an NPR podcast that talks about how race and culture affects everything that we do in this life. It's it's a wonderful podcast, and I encourage you to listen to it and check it out. The Stoop talks about race and culture and stories that that you don't hear of on the news that have affected black people, their stories. That's a good one. And if you're a person of faith and if you're interested in psychology, Anita Phillips in the light, she's a psychologist I talked about last week has an excellent new podcast out that's called in the light. And with the effort to amplify black voices this week and, and forevermore, I would encourage you to check out one of those podcasts this week. And lastly, I'm just going to say, for those of you who pray, this is a time that we need prayer. We, we need prayer more than anything else on over every part of our nation right now, but especially for those who are exhausted. So pray. Thank you. Be well, live full, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening today. And if you have a second, go on the Apple Podcast app and rate this podcast. I want to know what you liked and what you didn't like and what you want more of. And connect with me. I'd love to hear from you on any of my social media at Nero Feliciano, the incidental therapist on Facebook and Nero Feliciano on Instagram. And you can also connect with me through my website, Nero Feliciano. So until the next time, have a great day, be well and live full.